Holy Spirit. Amen. Today's scripture is Psalm 45. My heart overflows with a pleasing theme. I address my verses to the king. My tongue is like the pen of a ready scribe. You are the most handsome of the sons of men. Grace is poured upon your lips. Therefore, God has blessed you forever. Gird your sword on your thigh, O mighty one, in your splendor and majesty. In your majesty, ride out victoriously for the cause of truth and meekness and righteousness. Let your right hand teach you awesome deeds. Your arrows are sharp in the heart of the king's enemies. The peoples fall under you. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of your kingdom is a scepter of uprightness. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. Your robes are all fragrant with myrrh and aloes and cassia. From ivory palaces, stringed instruments make you glad. The daughters of kings are among your ladies of honor. At your right hand stands the queen in gold of Ophir. Hear, O daughter, and consider and incline your ear. Forget your people and your father's house, and the king will desire your beauty. Since he is your Lord, bow to him. The people of Tyre will seek your favor with gifts, the richest of the people. All glorious is the princess in her chamber with robes interwoven with gold. In many colored robes she has led to the king with her virgin companions following behind her. With joy and gladness they are led along as they enter the palace of the king. In place of your fathers shall be your sons. You will make them princes in all the earth. I will cause your name to be remembered in all generations. Therefore, nations will praise you forever and ever. Amen. Thank you, Lee. Well, this morning, we're turning our attention to Psalm 45. We've been doing a series of uh, Christ in the Psalms. And um, many of you may not know this. Some of you do know this. I've, I've been um, doing a lot of weddings this summer. A lot of people in this church have been getting married um, I've had five weddings uh, this summer, and so it feels like every other week I'm doing a wedding ceremony. And the place that I uh, used to work, um, St. David's School, is um, perhaps, in, in my opinion, the best venue, the best place uh, to get uh, married. And the reason for that, in, in my opinion, is, is just the, kind of the way that the chapel there is set up. Um, if I can describe it to you, I describe it like this. The the seating isn't, um, you know, facing forward like this. It's antiphonal. So if you imagine like all, all you fine folks over here, you turn and face towards the center, and all you fine folks over here, you turn and face in the center, and then we put you in stadium seating, right, so that, you know, everybody's a little bit higher uh, than the person in front of them, so you have a perfect view of the center, and we get rid of all of you. Um, not rid of you. We, we move you to the sides, right? There's this magnificent red aisle right down the middle, right? And then, so it's just like the perfect place for a bride to walk, right? To be the center of attention. But more than that, there is this Everest-like stairway um, at the, uh, the back of the chapel. And, and so, you know, the, the bride essentially descends down this very steep stairway 
um, of red coming down into this aisle and then, you know, towards the groom. Um, I had the privilege of doing a couple of weddings there. It was always kind of amazing. We would always talk to the bride before the, the ceremony. Do you want to descend down the stairway of death? Um, you know, or, or would you like to come in at the bottom? No bride that I was a part of there that I remember anyway wanted to come um, from the bottom. They always wanted to descend down from the top. We had one bride who um, was particularly adventurous. Um, she, she wanted candles on every stair. So I said to her, I was like, not only do you want to descend down the stairway of death, you want it to be on fire. Um, but it's this great venue, right, for, uh, for getting married because, you know, you want the attention, right, as the bride. You want to be the attention of the, the wedding ceremony. It's beautiful um, setup. Uh, loved it. Um, in the ancient Near East, in ancient Israel, weddings were a little different, as you might imagine, um, than they are uh, today. Uh, in, in, in the ancient kind of times in Israel, the way that weddings worked was essentially like the groom would show up um, to the bride's house and would pay a price essentially for the bride, right? Would pay the, the father of the bride a fee. Um, and then she, he would give like the bride some sort of sign of their, their wedding. And at that point, they're married, okay? They're, they're bride and groom, they're man and wife at that point. But the wedding isn't over, uh, essentially, then the groom would go back, and he was tasked with kind of preparing a house uh, for him and his bride, for the new couple to kind of live in. And so, once that was done, and it could sometimes take years, right? Some some of these some of these you know Jewish guys, it took them a little while, right? And and so sometimes like it could be like seven, eight years before the house was finally ready, and they're married the whole time. Right? And so finally, after this long period of time, once the place is prepared, the bride would come in this amazing march, and it's not just down an aisle, right, like our weddings, but like across town or across multiple towns, right? She would travel from wherever her home was to the new home of the bride and groom, and it was this amazing procession. Um, I, I, I think about that, right, because I think about like St. David's and kind of the majesty of the entrance of a bride in, in that space and the majesty of some of the entrances of some of the brides that I've witnessed this summer, right? And, and what we have described in, in Psalm 45 is, is, a, is a wedding. It's, a, it's an exciting wedding. And, and, and who are the couple? Who are the couple in Psalm 45? I spent a lot of time researching this because, you know, a lot of times in Psalms, you know, you have essentially like a, a type. A psalm is usually about some ancient uh, near, near Eastern, some ancient Israelite king, um, and then it's kind of like applied to Christ. So who's the original king in this passage? I spent a lot of time researching that. Some folks thought that the king described here in Psalm 45 was Solomon. Solomon, the, you know, great wealthy Israelite king, and, and that the bride is maybe his bride from Egypt. Um, others thought maybe David, you know, the, the, the psalm talks about weapons, and Solomon was kind of a peaceful king, so maybe it's David. David was a war-like king. He fought lots of people, so maybe it's David. Um, another set of commentators thought it was like various different other kings in Israel's history. One commentator even thought that it was Ahab and Jezebel um, that this is describing. Ahab, the very famous not-so-good king, right? And Jezebel, the very famous not-so-good queen. Um, others thought maybe it's describing some sort of king and queen while the Israelites were actually in captivity. So bottom line, commentators are all over the map in terms of what, who this 
king and queen are. Um, but one, one theory kind of stood out to me and, and kind of stands out as, as my favorite. I don't think that the psalmist here is describing any historical king or queen. Maybe. I, I want to be clear. I don't know. Maybe. But my suspicion is, is that the psalmist was dreaming specifically about a messianic king that was to come. And the reason that I think that is for a couple of reasons. First of all, verse 1, my heart overflows with a pleasing theme. That kind of sounds less like I'm describing a historical event and more like I'm kind of dreaming about something that's exciting. Um, Furthermore, in verses 6 and 7, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. Your scepter of your kingdom is a scepter of uprightness, and you have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. The, the word there, God, is Elohim. It's the Hebrew word for God. It's the same word that appears in Genesis, you know, uh, you know God creating the heavens and earth at the very beginning, Elohim. Um, what's somewhat startling is that this is not applied to God in heaven. Your throne, O God, is talking about the king. Therefore, God, your God anointed you, right? Notice that the king is described as Elohim. There's not any other example of an Israelite king being described as Elohim anywhere in the Bible. That's, that's not something that's, that's there. That's not common. And in fact, you know, you find kind of the opposite in the Bible. Um, Israelite kings were very definitively not God, right? And that kind of actually made them stand apart from other ancient Near Eastern kings. Pharaoh, for example, thought that he was a god, right? Um, But throughout Scripture, you see this very clear distinction between Israelites' kings and God. And yes, the king did represent God, um, but never, never would the king be referred to as God. And so something else is going on in this psalm. And in fact, the earliest Jewish commentators picked up on this psalm and very definitively defined it as predictive of a coming Messiah, a Messiah who would be in in many ways divine. And it didn't, they didn't have a tendency to ascribe it to a specific king. They subscribed it to some future king who was going to be beyond and greater and better than any of their kings. Guess who we think that is? Any guesses who we Christians think that is? Jesus. Very good, Sunday school. The Sunday school answer. Jesus. Um, It very clearly um, points to Christ. And actually, the authors of the New Testament picked up on this. Hebrews chapter 1 quotes Psalm 45 and very specifically says that it's describing Christ. It says that basically all the other kings of the earth, all the other angels, everybody else in all the universe, nobody else can compare to Christ in terms of what is said about him in, for example, Psalm 45. So, the groom in this passage is definitively Christ. And Jesus shows up, right, in the Gospels, shows up and starts referring to himself as the bridegroom. Um, His coming, his initial coming, the New Testament authors pick up on that, and it's him paying the initial bride price, right? Paul in Ephesians picks up on Jesus being uh, the bridegroom, um, and he describes who as the bride? Us, the church. 
And, and throughout the New Testament, the church is kind of picked up on as the bride of Christ. And, and that kind of culminates in, in Revelations chapter 21 and 22, essentially describing um, the, the great wedding feast of the Lamb, uh, right? The Lamb marries the New Jerusalem, which is representative of the church. The Lamb represents Christ. New Jerusalem represents the church. So this is a psalm, whether it was once about a historical king or not, it is definitively a psalm celebrating the marriage of us to Christ. CTK, this is your wedding. This is your wedding day that's being described. I, I tell every couple that I do premarital counseling with, at some point we talk about like different logistics. Um, and, and usually what I tell them, I said, you know, it's I think, you know, the logistics are kind of just trappings, but one thing I'd really encourage you to do is to hire a good photographer. Because here's the deal. Once you get to your wedding, you don't remember it. <laughs> all the logistics, all the things you're worrying about, you don't necessarily remember that. And it's great to have a photographic record of it after the fact. I don't remember hardly any details of my wedding. Every now and then I pull out like our wedding album and I flip through it and I'm like, oh, look, Lee was there. He uh, played keyboard. Um, thanks for that. Um, and you know, and I, I look at different things, you know, that, that happened at our wedding and I'm kind of like, oh, yeah, I kind of forgot about that. Well, Psalm 45 is the wedding album of the wedding that has not yet fully completed and taken place. You know, the Queen of Hearts in Alice in Wonderland told uh, Alice once, she, she said, hey, it's a, it's a very poor sort of memory that only works backwards. This is the memory of the wedding that is yet to be. It is God's gift to us to look at our wedding day with Christ and to look at it with eager expectation. Now, I, I need to say, with some kind of pastoral sensitivity, looking at this may be hard for some of you. Because some of you are in hard marriages. Some of you aren't married. Some of you really want to be married. Some of you don't care about marriage. <laughs> You're coming from all sorts of different places with regards to your personal experience with marriage in this life. But this psalm isn't about that. This is a psalm about our marriage in heaven. It's something that all of our experiences with marriage, all of our experiences in life, are meant to bleed into and point to. Whether you're single or married, you have a unique perspective on this wedding day that is valuable and needs to be celebrated and rejoiced and meditated upon. And so that's our goal this morning. We have just two points. And I told the early church service that it was going to be a short sermon. It really wasn't. So I'm going to do my best to shorten it. Uh, but even though it's just two points, it, it, we might take a little while because here's what we're going to do. We're going to look down the aisle at the groom, Jesus. And then we're going to look up the aisle at the bride, which is the church, right? Down the aisle at the groom, up the aisle at the bride. It's like the wedding photographer took two pictures, and that's how the psalm is laid out. Looks at the groom and then the bride. So first, the groom. First, the groom. Um, first thing that we see in verse 2, verse 2a, you are the most handsome of the sons of men. Jesus is handsome. <laughs> Jesus is handsome. Of course, if you've read the New Testament, you might say, hmm, I don't remember reading about how handsome Jesus was. Kind of seemed like a lowly carpenter, kind of plainly. I don't remember like crowds and crowds of teenage, you know, Jewish girls swooning at the sight of him. Uh, none of that 
happened. There's not a lot of, you know, ink spilled in the New Testament over the, the beauty of Christ in his, his bodily form when he came as a man. And in fact, a lot of ink is spilled over the ugliness of some of his life and how he suffered and he died on the cross. And, uh, but notice, I want you to understand that Jesus Christ is the most beautiful man that's ever lived. He's the most beautiful man that has ever lived metaphorically and literally. First, metaphorically. Uh, Isaiah says that how beautiful are the feet of him who brings good news, right? Uh, Isaiah, talking about the feet, uh, kind of the ugliest part of the body, says it doesn't matter that the feet are ugly. Um, They're beautiful if they're bringing good news. Well, Jesus Christ was the bringer of good news. He brought more good news than anybody ever. He He is the good news, right, essentially. And so, metaphorically speaking, we have to say that, that Jesus is beautiful. Uh, the, the, the news, the hope of the gospel that He supplied us with is the most beautiful thing ever. And what's more is that even though His suffering and His death were ugly, horrible, terrible to think about, every year on Good Friday during Easter, we meditate on the ugliness of the cross and we meditate on that ugliness as something beautiful. Jesus in his life and his death were beautiful, but more than that, in his resurrection, he is beautiful, literally beautiful. When he rises from the dead, you do start to get the the sense that people are kind of in awe of his presence. It's kind of like he has something attractive to, to him, even though he still has nail holes in his hands, right? Even though he still has the marks of some of his suffering, he is beautiful. Can you imagine what it's going to be like on the day when you get to see Jesus, Christians? Can you imagine that? You know, I mentioned that I did several weddings this summer, and I won't single out this one because I don't want to embarrass anybody. But I did one wedding, and the doors opened. And the bride and the groom, I mean, they just started weeping. Like not like quiet weeping, but like loud weeping, like puddles of water weeping, like someone call the janitor and mop up the floor before someone slips on all these tears kinds of weeping. You realize that when we get to heaven, when we see Christ face to face, now we see in a mirror darkly, but then we will see face to face, we will gaze on the very face a beautiful Jesus, and this psalm is absolutely right in describing him as the most handsome of the Son of Men. We need to think about that moment. We need to meditate on it, because as we take our bride's journey towards our groom, oftentimes we can be distracted by all sorts of suffering and hardship in this world, all kinds of sin in our own lives, and and we can lose sight of the fact of where we're going, of what we're looking for. And this world can press in on us and sometimes we'll, we'll make the subtle argument that maybe Jesus isn't that beautiful. Maybe he isn't that attractive. Maybe this isn't worth it. CTK, it's so worth it. He is the most handsome of the Son of Men. Gazing upon the face of Christ will be gazing upon the most beautiful thing that you've ever seen. And I can't wait to get there with you. Second thing that I want you to see about the groom is notice in the second verse 2b, the gracefulness of King Jesus. Grace is poured upon your lips. Grace is poured upon his lips. You know, 
Jesus isn't the awkward groom that just doesn't know what to say when he sees his bride. Um, he has nothing but gracious things to say. And I, I think that's important for many of you. Um, I think it's important for me because oftentimes, like, I struggle with sin. And I worry. I worry about that moment when I come face to face with Jesus because I'm going to see him in all his glory, and I know he's going to see me in all of my sin. And now listen, if you think pastors are better people than other people, let's go get coffee. I'll sit down and I'll tell you very plainly, right to your face, about 10% of my sin. 10% of it I will lay out for you to look at and gasp at and go, oh, I can't believe that, right? And some of what I'll share with you is a little shocking, but there's the other 90% right, that I won't share with you because you will go running from this church forever. You'll be like, I'm never going to associate with that man ever again. But here's the deal. Like, Jesus doesn't just see the 10%. He sees the 90%. And above that, he sees another 50 to 1,000% that I'm not even aware of. And so when I show up face to face with Jesus, I do worry. Like, what's he going to (laughs) say? Do you take this bride? (laughs) I worry he's not going to say, no, I don't. (laughs) But that's not what this psalm says, and that's not what the New Testament points us to. Jesus is incredibly gracious, and he's paid for our sins, and he's covered it. He values us. He cherishes us, and grace is poured upon his lips. When Jesus sees you in heaven, he is not going to go running. He is going to be rejoicing. He is going to have beautiful things to say about you. And when that door opens, it's not just us that'll be weeping, it'll be him because he longs to be with us. Grace is poured upon his lips. You know, um, recently when my wife and I, we celebrated our anniversary, and um, uh, on our anniversary, I had a presbytery meeting in Durham. So I was in presbytery all day on our anniversary till about two or three o'clock in the afternoon. Um, So it was a great anniversary. My wife was at home with our five kids. You can imagine how much she loved that. Um, (laughs) Presbytery, by the way, it's, it's, you know, not always the funnest of meetings. But anyway, I'm coming back from Presbytery, and I had gotten word that a director at NC State's theater was retiring. Uh, I was involved in the theater in NC State when I was there, and I was kind of eager to go. Wish this guy a, a congratulations on his retirement. Um, even though I had the option of sending an email or making a video and sending it, um, I decided that this man that I hadn't seen in five years, I needed to go and just tell him, congratulations on your retirement, on my anniversary, while my wife was at home with our five kids by herself all day. And I, I get to the theater and I realize, man, this is a bad idea. This is dumb. <laughs> and, uh, and I text Katie and I tell her what I'm doing. And as I hit send, I'm like, ooh, this isn't going to play well. <laughs> and so I, I, you know, I bust in there. I'm like, congratulations. And I leave, right? And I go home and I'm thinking, man, I'm going to get home and my wife is going to be so livid with me. And I get home and she is nothing but grace. I fell in love anew with Katie Sutton in that moment. Just, you know, I mean, our marriage was deepened and enriched because I found out how gracious she was. The Lord Jesus is that gracious and more to us. Can you imagine having all of your sins known and forgiven face to face? Next thing I want you to see is the strength of King Jesus. That's uh, verses 
3 through 5, talks about girding swords on your thigh and bows and arrows and riding out victoriously. And, you know, essentially you have this picture of this military king. This is why a lot of people don't think it's Solomon because Solomon didn't do all this uh, much fighting. Um, this military king with a sword and he's riding out and he's got a bow. And, we, you know, we could talk about how all of these things apply to Jesus. We could talk about how swords often in the New Testament are, um, you know, analogous to his word. His word is powerful and sharp. The word of Elohim, right, that created uh, the heavens and the earth, that's, that's essentially the picture here is, is a powerful sword and, and bows and arrows that can pierce the hearts of his enemies. Um, you know, I I have this theory that the bow is, is actually talking about, like, I think that it ties in with Genesis and Noah's ark, right? The rainbow is actually the bow of God. You think about how powerful that bow is. It's turned up after the flood, right? But before the flood, it's turned down. It's like pouring out God's wrath and the power of his wrath. I don't know if that's really accurate, though. So, you know, take that with a grain of salt. But that's my, my theory is, like, all of these are, are powerful weapons. I think we tend to see sword and bow and arrow, and we think, oh, those are quaint kind of, you know, nice, like, antique weapons that aren't really that powerful. But, but essentially, what is being described here is, is world-dominating power in the king. It's like the nuclear arsenal of the king, right? Think of it, think of it that way. And, and the point is this. Who's going to show up and mess up this guy's wedding? Are, are any of the bride's enemies... Are any of the groom's enemies going to show up on the wedding day and mess with this dude? The answer is no. Because if anybody stands up and messes in any way with this wedding ceremony, right, the groom is going to level them. And that's, and that's the picture in this psalm, that there is no one who can dispute the might of this king. No one will come into this wedding ceremony. No one will come into this marriage and mess with the peace of this bride and groom because the king is that powerful. The king is that equipped to deal with enemies. And brothers and sisters in Christ, all of the things that you struggle with, the things that you worry about in this life, all of this world's struggles, all of this world's pain, all of this world's sorrow, suffering, and grief will not be admitted. It will be scared to show up on the wedding day because the Lord Jesus Christ is strapped on his sword. He has his arrows and he will not allow it to have any presence in his wedding. Fourth thing that I want you to see is the regality of the king. This is um, verses six uh, through eight, right? You have this picture of the throne in verse 6. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of your kingdom is a scepter of uprightness. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. Your robes are all fragrant with myrrh and aloes and cassia. From ivory palaces, string instruments make you glad. Okay. All kinds of regal imagery here, right? First, starting with the throne. We've already talked about the throne of the King Jesus. Psalm 110 talked about it right? The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Um, forever, Jesus reigns on a throne next to God, right? An eternal throne that's never going away, okay? Uh, the next image is the image of a scepter. We talked about that in Psalm 23. Um, Psalm 23 is the, the great shepherd image of Jesus. That's a kingly image, right? And the scepter finds its origin in the shepherd's crook, it's essentially how a king was meant to rule his people. He essentially like leads them by the, the crook, 
right? And, and this is describing his scepter as a scepter of righteousness. He's an incredibly righteous king. He, he does everything right. Um, his kingdom is marked um, by everything being done right. And then you have uh, in the next section uh, this image of anointing. That's not something we've talked about. Anointing. Anointing is kind of a weird practice if you think about it. Has anybody ever seen that done? Like someone pulls out some oil and pours it on someone's head, right? In the Old Testament, that was common for prophets, priests, and kings. These people that were um, essentially uh, the caretakers of God's covenant relationship with his people. Um, They were essentially representatives of God, and they were anointed. Why? Well, in ancient Near Eastern culture, the communication would have been essentially like um, lots of other cultures, they, they would take like the fat of various different animals, they would make that into an oil, a fragrant oil, and they would pour that onto certain individuals. And it was meant to essentially represent that that animal and its power or the God that that animal represented would be bestowed upon the person who was anointed, right? The closest thing that we probably have to experiencing that is the movie Black Panther, right? Remember Black Panther? He gets the power of the panther, Right? It's kind of that concept, right? That was very prevalent in the ancient Near East. And so, but in, in Israel, when these people were anointed, the, the picture is not a, a picture of an animal oil or, or fat being poured on. It, it's essentially a, a prefiguring of, of the Spirit, the Holy Spirit. It's essentially meaning that God himself is, is invested in that person, that that person is essentially empowered with the Spirit of God. And Jesus Christ right? When he comes, there's this baptism, which is meant to be his anointing, and you see this dove come down, the Spirit of God, and you have essentially in Christ the fulfillment of that imagery, the full fulfillment. Jesus isn't just empowered with the Holy Spirit of God. He is God, and he represents God, and in his relationship with God is bound together with the Spirit, and that that anointing um, represents um, his authority and kingly power. Now, um, I want to pause just for a second. There's one more image, the palace. Uh, But all of this, the point of this is this. Why is it so important that we get that this guy's a king? Why is it so important that we deal with the regality of it? That's because whenever a king is married, there's, there's an element in which the human world is kind of marrying the divine. You think about why do we get so excited about British weddings? Can we talk about that for a minute? Like, why do we get so excited about British weddings? Some of them, I don't know. Anyway, um, I, I've been watching the movie, uh, the show The Crown on Netflix. If you watch The Crown, you kind of pick up throughout it kind of this, this concept of the divine right of kings. Uh, the divine right of kings, kings essentially represent gods. Even the English monarchs have a sense of that, even within their Christian framework. Right? And if you watch The Crown, like Elizabeth talks about that at various different points, it's very fascinating. Um, there's a sense in which a royal wedding, a royal wedding is a marriage of humanity to the divine. And in this case, this wedding, the wedding of the Messiah, the anointed one, that's what Messiah means, the anointed one of God is a marriage of humanity with the divine. And the palace that's represented, the final image of the king, um, you see it in verse 8, from ivory palaces, stringed instruments make you glad. You have kind of the bride arriving to the the palace. It's essentially us arriving into heaven, right? Jesus said, essentially, um, 
I go to prepare a place for you. In my Father's house, there are many uh, rooms, right? I'm going to go prepare a place for you. Essentially, I paid the bride price. Now come and be in the place with me. Essentially, when we go to heaven, this is what it's going to look like. I can't help but think about Preston Hunt. Many of you know Preston. was a member of you for a long time, had brain cancer and passed away um, not too long ago. Um, we were visiting him in hospice care, and I talked about this at his funeral, but I can't stop thinking about this. There was this woman who wandered around hospice care with a harp, and she just offered to play for people. It was her kind of service to people who were in hospice. And Preston was in there, and she came in, and she said, hey, would you like some harp music? Can I play for you? <laughs> and Preston said, I'm not ready for that quite yet, <laughs> and sent her away. <laughs> But this is the picture of us arriving in heaven. Can you imagine the fanfare? It's not just going to be harps. It's going to be all kinds of beautiful music. It's going to go beyond what we sing on Sunday mornings. But that's a picture of it. There will be great rejoicing when we arrive in heaven because the divine will be joined with humanity. We will become a part of the divine through our marriage with Christ Jesus himself. Amazing. CTK, we need to spend time meditating on the groom because so often as we travel through life, I think we get distracted. We, we lose sight of where we're going. The world presses in on us, and we need to meditate on who Jesus is, where we're going. I was in Ireland on a missions trip, and I was at this place called Greystones. It was a hotel by the sea. We were doing a retreat there, and there was this Irish guy who got up at the crack of dawn before the sun came up, and he went out into, like, the field next to Greystones. And he had a guitar, and with his little leprechaun Irish kind of, like, voice, he was just wailing away. I was out there because I was trying to dutifully have, like, a quiet time, you know? And this guy was, like, totally interrupting. I'm like, what is he doing? It was beautiful. He was singing the sun up, meditating upon the day when Jesus would return to call him home and he would rejoice in the presence of his Savior. That's what we need to do, CTK. All right, that was one sermon. I'm now going to move on to the second one. <laughs> It'll be quicker, I hope. Second, second image in our wedding album is the photo of the bride. That's us. Notice the foreign origin of the bride. Verse 10, Hear, O daughter, and consider and incline your ear. Forget your people in your father's house, and the king will desire your beauty. Um, we're a foreign bride. We're foreign. And that doesn't mean we're like mysterious and kind of full of intrigue, right? In Israel, foreign wives were kind of a bad thing, right? We're coming from another land, another worldview, false gods, all kinds of um, kind of weird stuff that go on in other kingdoms. You're not supposed to marry brides from foreign countries. It's kind of the, the impression you get if you read the Old Testament. And so it's somewhat surprising that a meditation on the Messianic king would marry a foreign bride. And yet that's what Jesus did. That's what we are. We are sinful children of this world, right? We come from a, a foreign culture, a foreign culture of sin. We have no business being in heaven in the place of a, a, an eternally righteous God whose righteousness will consume sin. No business being there whatsoever. You think about that individually. You have all kinds of sin. I have all kinds of sin. I already talked about it. But think about it corporately as well. You know, many of you are very gracious. You come to me all the time, some of you, and you talk about, man, I love this church. 
love this church and you have all kinds of things about the church that you love, some of you are brave enough to come and tell me things that you don't love about the church. <laughs> and uh, believe me, I know that there are even more of you that probably talk amongst yourselves about things that you don't love about this church. I do that. But I got to tell you, like, our church is, is, is full of sin and full of dysfunction. We're messed up. We're a bunch of misfits. Spend a little time with us, those of you who are new. Um, you'll get to know. Like, we are a crazy ragtag bunch of people worshiping in downtown Raleigh, and I don't know sometimes why. Um, sometimes some of the, the conflict that we have is, is messy. Um, there's all kinds of messed up stuff that goes on in this church, okay? Believe me, sometimes we can get coffee. I'll tell you about 10% of it. <laughs> but I'll tell you honestly, I, I also have kind of like a bigger picture because I go to Presbytery and I hear about other churches. If you think this church is bad... <laughs> I have heard some messed up stuff about other churches. I, I, I can't even begin. I won't tell you because that would just be gossip. Um, but I mean, like, I just probably have a view that scratches the surface of the dysfunction of the worldwide church of Jesus Christ that's in the world right now. Like, just think about it. Like, how messed up is the body of Christ? And we have little glimpses of it here and there, but we don't know about a ton of it. Now think about the historical body of Christ. <laughs> like all of us know some of history's lessons of how the body of Christ has just been really ugly and messed up. And, you know, we have no business being in heaven as the church. And yet, and we are exhorted to forget our foreign ways, to turn from them. That's the exhortation of the psalm. And we are being transformed. I loved the C.S. Lewis quote that Mary Pat read because that's what God is doing with all of us. None of us, right? None of us are mere mortals. We're being transformed into the bride of Christ. <laughs> How glorious is that? And this verse that says, the king will desire your beauty. There is inherent beauty in each of us, in us corporately, in us universally. The, the, the church of Jesus Christ is beautiful and will be made beautiful when he returns. We will be incredibly stunning because of his sacrifice and covering of our sin and his making us beautiful. But more than that, notice we'll also be wealthy. Verses 12 and 14 talk about the wealth of the queen, beautiful multicolored robes laced with gold, people bringing all kinds of gifts to be sure our life as the church of Jesus Christ in this world is not necessarily marked by wealth, much like Jesus' life in this earth wasn't marked by wealth. But the riches and glories that we will have when we come into the palaces with the stringed instruments playing is unrivaled by anything that we could ever experience or imagine in this life. If you think the wealth of this world that you have to turn down because you're pursuing Christ is something to give up, you ain't seen nothing yet. Wait until you come into the presence of the King and are lavished with the gifts that He will pour upon you for eternity. Incredible. The last thing that I want you to see about the bride is the joy of the bride. Verse 15, with joy and gladness, they are led along as they enter the palace of the king. 
We don't necessarily always have joy and gladness as the church. We're led along with joy and gladness. Hopefully, all of us, to some degree or another, have joy and gladness in the reality of the gospel, and we're walking in that. But the Psalms would contradict me if I told you that all of this life is full of joy and gladness for Christians, for believers. There's great sorrow often along the way. But when we get there, when we get there, there will be no room for anything else. There will only be joy and gladness because the groom who is standing waiting for us longs to be with us, longs to be with you, wants you to be his and him to be yours. If you are struggling in this life, if you are struggling to find joy, if you're struggling to find contentment, if you're struggling to find gladness, my suggestion would be to spend some time meditating on this psalm, meditating on the marriage that is coming. Because I think oftentimes we forget, we forget that we have a groom who loves us. We forget that we're his bride, that this is our wedding. Sometimes I think we forget and struggle with, is this real? Or is this just the imagination of some poet from thousands of years ago? One of my kids' favorite movies, and I'll end with this, is the movie Nanny McPhee. You ever seen that movie? Um, it's like Emma Thompson. She's kind of like this witch nanny figure who kind of gets more beautiful as the film progresses. I love the picture um, uh, of Nanny McPhee. I love the movie because there's all kinds of gospel imagery in it. One of the pictures is the character Evangeline. She's the illiterate scullery maid, right, who cares for the children. Mr. Brown is uh, trying to find a wife, and right under his nose is poor Evangeline, the illiterate scullery maid, who reads bedtime stories to his children about fairy tale, you know, farm girl women who are married by, you know, these princes. Um, and she's reading the book halfway through the story, and Annie McPhee encounters her, and, and she asks her about the book. She says, you know, hey, how's the book? And she's, she's struggling with it, right? I told you she's illiterate. She can't really read very well. And she says to Nanny McPhee, she says, I wish, I wish they would write books about real people. I guarantee you this, this woman, she's in the story, she's made out to be a farm girl, but they're going to find out she's a princess of some sort because there's no way this guy would marry her if she was just an illiterate farm girl. Well, you might remember how the story ends. Mr. Brown winds up marrying Evangeline. She winds up being the bride that, that, that he marries, right? As he's walking down the aisle with Nanny McPhee, like, they just had this incredible food fight. I mean, arguably one of the best food fights in cinematic history, right? So she's wearing this dress. She's all covered in food, and she says, I don't look much the bride, do I? And Nanny McPhee says, you will. She looks up, and like snow comes down, magical. <laughs> And all of a sudden, she's in a white, pure wedding dress, like looking stunning and beautiful. And she's walking down the aisle, and Nanny McPhee says, how's the reading going? And she says, I've gotten better at reading, but I still haven't finished that story. still don't know how it ends. And she says, no need. You are the end of the story. CTK, we are the end of the story. This is our wedding day. This is the picture 
of Christ's love for us that he's given us in advance, gave us the wedding album before the wedding even happened so we can look with longing and expectation and joy in what will be ours when we are finally in the arms of our loving Savior. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. We're going to turn our